Hello and welcome back to the weekly Bunker Roundtable. My name's Andrew Harrison. Coming up on today's show, we used to think that the grey would never come, but now her findings are out in heavily redacted form. And as she says, it is not possible at present to provide a meaningful report. Has Johnson got away with it? Has the Met saved him? And what happens now? Plus, the Beijing Winter Olympics start this coming Friday to a backdrop of increasing Chinese repression in Hong Kong and Xinjiang and aggression in the South China Sea. US diplomats are boycotting the event should the rest of us refuse to take part in a sports-washing snow job. And why are Britain's MPs so deeply, deeply weird? All that and more in this week's podcast. Welcome back to The Bunker. Let's meet the panel. Justin Quirk is a journalist and editor. Hello, Justin. Hello, Andrew. So obviously we're going to be going right into Sue Gray stuff. But before all that, uh, looking at the thing that the male thinks we should be concentrating on, (laughs) if we had any sense of proportion, Liz Truss says it's very unlikely that British troops will be deployed in Ukraine. But weapons are being sent and sanctions imposed on oligarchs close to the Kremlin. Um, Johnson and Truss have been hanging tough on Ukraine. Is this the same Conservative Party that was so happy to take such a lot of money from uh, Russian oligarchs? Do we have any credibility in this? Yes, it's quite difficult to square that circle, isn't it? Um, obviously, I'm not party to any information about troop movements or Putin's inner workings, but the economic indicators uh, around the current situation are really interesting to read. And conventional broad spectrum sanctions seem like they're going to be really difficult to apply in the way that they have been against say Iran uh 40% of Europe's gas imports come from Russia so anything really meaningful against the Russian economy as a whole would be destabilizing to all of us on the global energy markets plus I was reading out like the FT was talking at the weekend saying you know Russia has foreign exchange reserves of around 600 billion dollars smaller only than China Switzerland and Japan so you know, they're quite firewalled from a lot of this stuff. So what they're talking about instead are the idea of these maybe more sort of individually targeted sanctions, which would then start hitting people like, you know, many of the people who've been underwriting sort of life in London for the last sort of 10 years. Um, this is where it gets really sticky. So, I mean, the Centre for American Progress said last week that Britain is going to face a huge challenge uprooting any wealthy Russians with Kremlin links from London, given the close ties, not only between Russian money and the Tory party, but also the press, real estate and the financial industry. So that's going to be a difficult one um, to unpick. Truss has come out and said, look, you know, the greater threat is to freedom and democracy. You know, that matters more than the economy. But it's really difficult to see if they're going to go through this. I think what you might see, and some of the more informed analysis seems to be is some sort of hybrid method of sanctions, which is looking to cut Russia off from parts of the global financial system, things like the SWIFT banking system. Um, that was used to really good effect against Iran. Um, also possible to limiting access to things like Russian bonds. So there are a lot of options on the table here, but I don't think what we're going to see is probably high-profile Russians led to Heathrow in ankle chains. If you want to know more about this, by the way, our sister podcast, um, Doomsday Watch, hosted by uh, brilliant Arthur Snell, is doing a special emergency Ukraine edition, uh, which will be out in the next couple of days. So uh, hop across and subscribe to that, obviously, when you finish listening to The Bonker. Um, also with us, we have Atlantic staff writer Yasmin Sahan. Hello, Yasmin. Hello, Andrew. Uh, so in the US, the Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer has announced that he's going to retire after three decades on the bench. What 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 does this mean? For, for, for us uh, clueless ang- Anglos, what does this actually mean? <laughs> um, what it means is that Justice Breyer um, has 
basically taken on, I think, a lot of the pressure he's been getting from Democrats and has learned the lessons of some of his former colleagues, namely uh, the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in deciding that rather than, you know, sort of wait it out and leave kind of, you know, the duration of his time on the bench to fate, um, that he would step down now and thereby allow the Biden administration to choose um his successor. Now, in in actual practice, when it comes to the balance of the bench, not to sound glib, but it doesn't mean very much because effectively what we're going to have here is one liberal or or democratic sort of, you know, uh, um, justice being replaced most likely by another very ideologically similar justice. So in that respect, the balance of the court isn't going to change. It's going to be a one-for-one swap. Um, But that doesn't mean that the decision, the forthcoming decision by President Biden, who I think is expected to name um, his nominee for for that spot, um, I think later in February, that doesn't mean that it's not going to be important. In fact, President Biden has made it clear that he intends to nominate um, a Black woman to the court, which would be um, a first um, in in the court's history. Um, And there are a couple of names that have been put out there, but I think the favorite um, is a woman called Katanji Brown-Jackson. She's a federal appeals court judge in Washington, D.C., and she was actually a former clerk for Justice Breyer. Um, So she's the current favorite, but there are other names. um, And yeah, I mean, so I think what what we're likely to to hopefully see is a Supreme Court that ideologically isn't probably going to change too much, but will hopefully be a bit more representative of the country that it oversees. So Biden's going to get to entrench some balance in the court. Does he have much else to celebrate at the moment? Um, Not really. And I mean, he's not because, I mean, it's still going to be, uh, what, a a 3-6 split, I think. So, you know, no, we're not going to really see much. But, you know, I think the the potential historic... uh, implications of of appointing uh, the the court's first um, black woman, I think, is is going to be majorly celebrated. That is one promise that he can um, achieve, um, and, and I think quite easily. Um, and ideally, he will do it soon because obviously we know the midterms are coming up, and that's when the Democrats do not want to wait until after that time. At which point, their their control of the Senate might be in question. Completing the panel, it's comedian and broadcaster. New stand-up show, Dress on Tour Now. Tickets available at ahearshah.com. It's Ahearshah. Hello, and pleasure to be back in the studio with you. Yeah, it's great. It's like We're like human meat space with like you know physical <laughs> presence. It's unbelievable. I'll never get used to this. So I want to ask you, over the weekend, Joni Mitchell and Axe legend Nils Lofgren joined Neil Young in taking their music off Spotify, protesting against uh, the podcaster Joe Rogan and his vaccine misinformation. Is this officially a groundswell now that it's not just Canada doing it? If you're Harry and Meghan are now complaining. Well, I, I'm particularly taken with uh, Harry and Meghan saying that they're deeply concerned about this because as far as I understand, it, they had a very, very lucrative contract with Spotify to produce a uh, large body of work and uh, to date have produced basically none of that work and are now <laughs> saying like, oh, no, well, we couldn't possibly. Oh, we were just about to. Uh, I think that that's a that's a, that's a really powerful message to um, people who want to do that. Uh, yeah, we want to <laughs> do the bare minimum everywhere. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Rogan, just an obnoxious figure. Um Spotify now says it's going to direct people towards accurate COVID information, but not been their $100 million signing. Is this circle squareable if you're Spotify? Well, I think it's a very difficult one for them because this is, you know, obviously 
in some ways a foreseeable event, right? If you bill yourself as your a music streaming company, you want to get into podcasts. The content of that is obviously going to be much very, better very than music. Okay. Okay. Much yeah. better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who who on earth would possibly want to listen to Mozart instead of this? Instead of this yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so it, it's not an entirely unforeseeable uh, thing for them, and perhaps you know they have to te- uh, weigh up the things of is Joe Rogan some sort of golden goose for them? I don't know how much money he's uh, making for them, if anything. I resent the fact that I know as much about him as I now do uh, and everything. Uh, I think that my main takeaway is that uh, Joe Reagan and I have the more or less basic same job description, right? We're comedians who I am occasionally on podcasts. He does podcasts. Uh, We are not the people to go to for medical advice (laughs) uh, other than sometimes like Paul Sinha, fantastic comedian, Mm. also a qualified doctor. Ask him Mm. that sort of thing. And he'll be funny with it uh, and everything. But as far as comics go, very few of us who you should listen to on health grounds. And of course, if Harry and Meghan can't finish their podcasts well we are here and the rate to reasonable <laughs> beautiful studio before we get started if you're enjoying the podcast here's a tiny reminder that you can help the bunker to keep on keeping on by supporting us on patreon the crowdfunding platform listeners like you and harry and megan are a bedrock of what we do so if you find the podcast useful or you just like vent like us venting on your behalf why not back us for as little as two pounds a month you get early episodes without adverts merchandise and all kinds of extras plus our undying gratitude. Search Bunker Patreon Podcast to find out more or just follow the link in the show notes. So the Sue Gray report was released at about 2.30 today, Monday 31st of January, just before we started recording. The initial reading was that the report, heavily generalised and non-specific because of the ongoing Met investigation, was pretty damning towards the culture of number 10, if not necessarily directly towards the man at the top. So where do we go from here, Justin? And, you know, is this the kind of report that can enable Johnson to say lessons have been learned, fire a few lackeys and carry on as before? Um, On first reading, I would say that for now it probably is, yes. However, I would add that the session in the Commons just now, which was going on right up until we started recording, was so bad for Johnson that it actually made me feel less confident he'll wriggle away from this. Um, But to be honest, I think that conclusion he'd have come from, you know, the lessons have been learned one, I think that would have been the case regardless of what Sue Gray wrote because my sense throughout all of this, and it remains so, has been not just that Johnson doesn't think he did anything wrong, but that he's genuinely baffled why this is an issue. Mm. And in in a very odd way, I do have some, you know, precise and limited sympathy for him here because he's done nothing different in the past 24 months to what he's been doing in the past 24 years. You know, he has run his entire political life on these lines and these principles. And two years ago, people voted for it in droves. And every time sort of more information comes out about this, it looks like, you know, trying to teach a dog long division or something. like. I just, I just don't think he's got the faculties or the mental capacity to appreciate what he's supposed to have done wrong here. I found watching the common session just now nauseating. I felt ill. I'd never, I, you know, and the way he was flinging out these sort of random accusations and dragging the, you know, the go-to cry of the social media idiot what about Keir Starmer and Jimmy Savile it's been debunked and disproved over and over again and for the Prime mm. Minister to chuck, it around, to chuck it around in the House of Commons it was like looking at a chimpanzee throwing its own shit around the room really felt made me feel ill and that you could actually see to an extent you know certain faces of horror on the Tory benches as well I thought even those guys mm. were kind mm. of disgusted Yasmin did you watch some of it? 
I, I did, yeah. I, I tuned in straight after I saw that Theresa May was apparently giving a, a clapback that had to be seen to be believed. Um, yeah, I did watch it. And, you know, I, I agree with Justin. I think, you know, what struck me was the lack of contrition. I mean, we did see in previous um, appearances in the Commons where, you know, I think Johnson had to kind of look, <laughs> whether he felt it or not, you know, genuinely sorry, he'd be kind of found out. Um, and, and there was palpable anger, I think, you know, on uh, on both sides of the Commons. Um, I think, you know, having read the report, I mean, I, I mean, I know that obviously it's limited, but it's kind of hard to imagine what she left out because I felt like some of that language was pretty damning. I mean, you know, saying that um, the behavior um, was difficult to justify, that, you know, there there were failures of leadership and judgment. I mean, those are the type of, I thought, pretty damning um, conclusions that I thought would, you know, elicit a bit more contrition um, out of the prime minister. And and I think you could see um, across, I thought for me, I mean, obviously Labour and, and the other parties are going to go hard on this. Um, but the fact that there were quite a number of Tory MPs who, who even if in perhaps a softer tone, asking the prime minister, are you going to release the full report once it's been made available, I thought was, was pretty noteworthy. And the other standout as well was repeatedly uh, opposition MPs asking Johnson to confirm whether he was at the party that is confirmed in Sue Gray's report, one of the few things that were actually there in black and white. And he couldn't confirm where he was and said, we have to wait for the investigation to come out. He needs an investigation from the Met to be able to say where he was on a particular day. It was just like, I felt like I was being barraged with a kind of Bannon approach of just, you know, just flood the zone with shit is his phrase, isn't it? Just make mm-hmm. it seem so nauseating and disgusting that you, your mind is turned around and you, you, you can't sort of, um, you can't process it. Justin, the exact quote in the Grey report is, I am extremely limited in what I can say about those events and it is not possible at present to provide a meaningful report. Is she effectively saying, I wanted to write a proper report, but they wouldn't let me, so please ignore this one? I think in the tone of that language, there's some preemptive covering of herself and a reminder for, I suspect, all the good it'll do, that when people start immediately typing typical establishment cover-up into Twitter, I think it was her way of getting out ahead of that and saying that, you know, she's been working within very tight parameters to a very clearly set brief, and there are only certain things that are within her purview. I mean, the, the wording she used there does sound like a particularly clear reminder to people that this isn't a final full accounting of the incident. And I think as much as a reminder to the public, it's also a reminder to the people who are under investigation. One thing that I thought jumped out that was particularly notable was she expressly says she will, quote, ensure the secure storage and safekeeping of all the information gathered until such times it may be required further. I will not be circulating the information internally within government has been providing confidence to the Cabinet Office investigation team. Uh, it's important that this confidence is maintained. Um, Adam Wagner, the human rights barrister, flagged that up immediately and said, that's the bit that sets my lawyer's spider sense tingling. Mm. I hear. How do you think this is going to play with Joe and Jenny Public? I mean, uh, the report itself was about what I expected uh, in terms of, you know, the Mets semi-stuck the oar in when they did. And so there was clearly going to be a limited amount that was ever going to come out of this. Uh, I think realistically, at this stage, most people have made their minds up, right? Uh, Either you are of the camp, as certain conservative backbenchers appear to be, that, oh, come on, can't we all just move on and uh, we should be focusing on the Ukraine and stuff and not really thinking about the fact that perhaps it's quite important that you're Prime Minister is such a distraction that such business isn't being uh, talked about and taken care of. Or you 
you think what you thought of him before? Like, I realistically, nothing that I read today or saw today in the House of Commons was going to change my mind and have me suddenly think that, oh, no, it turns out I was wrong about Bozza and he's a, he's a solid guy and he's the one to take this forward. Having said that, I certainly didn't think... I, I'm continually surprised by quite how low... Uh, he can go when the Savile thing came up yeah. uh, sort of out of no and you're like what what on Jesus, earth what the you... hell are you saying yeah, yeah. Um, it's just that like and even that I know like he's a, a wounded animal and he's cornered and everything but even then uh, some of it just seemed deeply, deeply odd. Uh, and like when um, Luke Pollard, the Labour backbencher, talked about uh, whether there was also evidence of drug taking at Downing Street and uh, Johnson talked about, uh, well, why don't you ask the Labour front bench, which I thought was a spectacular thing for, yeah. uh, you know, like people who live in glass houses probably shouldn't throw rocks and uh, complain about others perhaps having a keen <laughs> sense of smell. Uh, and, you know, it's the, the thing that really stuck with me from the debate, though, was the, the Conservative MP Aaron Bell, uh, who said that he had driven from Staffordshire to Kent to go to, I believe, his grandmother's funeral, where there were 10 people allowed at that thing. He didn't hug his family and he didn't go to his grandma's house for a cup of tea or anything after that. He got right back in the car and drove back to Staffordshire and he asked, does the Prime Minister think I'm a fool? And I think that that's the question that mm. a lot of people have been asking, are asking, and I think have the answer to. Yeah, and the, the, the sort of strong impression that it's it's not even what uh, went on around the parties or even the lies around the parties that could be the, the thing that finally moves the needle. It's the idea that a performance like this will be enough to shut you up. You mm. know, you're foolish enough and you're uh, you know lacking in commitment enough to pursue it that I can just waffle you out of it. Yeah. And it, it seemed just an extension of the sort of like born to rule, well, this is my right uh, mm. to be here. And it's always like, well, obviously I wasn't doing what I told the little people to do. Mm. And how dare you either have expected me to or, you know, you come here and ask these questions as though I should be because he wants to be the king, not, yeah. the, not the prime minister. One of the interesting little footnotes that appeared is that uh, Grace says she looked at 16 separate gatherings, mm. some of which took place on the same day. And she said that 12 of these uh, parties are now subject to police investigation. I don't get invited to 16 parties in a year when there isn't a pandemic on. <laughs> I don't think I've been to 16 parties in the past 16 years. And like these guys are like, whoop, whoop, raise the roof. Yeah. I like the implication that like not only was there, because, you know, like, yes, am I concerned about people having a glass of wine in a garden after work? Like, well, I'm concerned about the fact that they told other people that they couldn't mm. do it, but it's not like from a pandemic perspective uh, or whatever. But the fact that there's like multiple things and it's like you can only meet one other person. But in Downing Street, we've got like there's a chill out zone uh, yeah. over there. And there's got a, the tech house room, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got a hard house room, chill out, <laughs> yeah, yeah, traffic like party over Smart there. Smart drugs uh, over there. Morris is clad entirely in green, absolutely. And, uh, Keys in the bowl. Sounds like mega triple. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, mega dog. Yeah, mega big dog is what it is, I suppose. Uh, yeah, it is remarkable, isn't it? That, um, but actually, I mean, Yasmin, I wanted to ask you that uh, deep and buried in the report, there appears to be something of a get out clause mm. where Gray Gray finds that the number ten garden was quote often used as an extension of the workplace as a more COVID secure means of holding group meetings in a ventilated space. And you can absolutely see, you know, Johnson has raised this previously, but outdoor ventilation was not part of the rules in May 2020. We didn't even know about outdoor ventilation. We all remember walking <laughs> down the high street on the way to the shops, 
running out to run down the middle of the road in case you breathed on a granny. Mm. So Yasmin, yeah. is, is, uh, can you expect this one to uh, to be run up the flagpole? Yeah, I I remember that stood out to me too when I was reading the report. And um, from what I gathered from when I was tuning um, into the House of Commons, uh, the Prime Minister didn't use this as some sort of excuse or cover. And I think he would be wise not to because, you know, sure, all of us could look back on some of the decisions we made in hindsight. You know, everything is 2020 with COVID. Um, you know, some of the more onerous restrictions, like we couldn't sit on park benches, we could only, you know, be outside for a limited time, all those things. Yeah, in hindsight, they look silly, but it doesn't really matter about, you know, whether or not they were right. The fact of the matter is that the government imposed all these rules on us. So yes, in hindsight, we know now, okay, yes, being in a garden is okay. But it's also very different to use a garden as a workspace. Yes, you know, by all means, if you're going to be working in the same building, opening the windows, having more ventilation, that's all great. But it's quite another to throw parties and to have it be a social gathering when, as you say, you know, you couldn't even walk with more than one person outside. Um, so I, I think, yeah, that sort of excuse would um, would probably rub a lot of people the wrong way. So I, I think, and, and it seems to be that the, the prime minister is leaning more towards the you know, wait for the inquiry, which sounds very similar to wait for Sue Gray's report. I mean, effectively, we're waiting for Godot. Um, that seems to be the kind of um, approach. Um, what they say after the Mets uh, report comes out um, or the findings of the Mets inquiry comes out, um, I, I await to see. I, I'm keen to see what we'll be waiting for next. I believe it's coming out the twelfth of never, and that's a long, long time. <laughs> I, uh, I I particularly like the whole guys. It's it's a household and a workplace, and absolutely no one else in the country could possibly know what it is like to live in the place that you also work. <laughs> so, <laughs> Do they like walk around with like their underpants on, just like doing work and things like that? Do they have to sit at the kitchen table doing meetings? Who could imagine such a world? <laughs> what a, what a terrible reflection on how you addressed when we were doing remote recordings. What the screen can't see, the listener doesn't need, doesn't need to know about. And actually, that interesting thing you raised there, I right hear the um, the story that also emerged at the weekend about uh, oh, again from Dominic Cummings, founder of all the good stuff now, um, that um, papers. Uh, classified papers were routinely left strewn around uh, Boris and Carrie's flat and Carrie's mates had all been given the pin code on the door uh, to get in because you know they may need to have an urgent meeting with wine at 2am so basically you know a a key security um, protocol here has been broken. Yeah, well, it's almost as though Boris Johnson isn't a details guy. And I think that, I, you know, I'm very grateful for Mr. Cummings for everything that he's doing. And once he has completed this, if he could get on to the uh, almost Sisyphean task of discovering who it was who yeah. uh, thought that Boris Johnson would be a good person to lead this country in the first place, then uh, I'm sure that we would eternally be in his favour. As it stands, I am very pleased that he is as upset that he is that there was a party uh, to commemorate the foundation of the ancient order of no homers. Yeah. Yes, when Dom finds that guy, there's going to be real trouble. It's going to be hell to pay. So, Justin, uh, what happens next? I mean, the government has said it won't publish an unredacted version once the Met Inquiry ends. So this afternoon's stuff, please wait until the Met Inquiry ends. is clearly bullshit. Nikki da Costa, former director of legislative affairs at Number 10, she worked for both Theresa May and Boris Johnson, says that if the government tries to do that, tries to prevent the unredacted version from coming out, Labour's going to force a vote on the matter. Is there any way politically to sit on this report? Is it going to come out one day somehow? Um, I mean, one would hope not, but then... I mean, the most obvious of analogy that springs to mind is the Russia report, which was parked for something like seven months, I think. And 
it had lost a lot of its salience by the time it came. They did come out eventually, but they'd sort of, you know, run the clock down on it. And much of Johnson's strategic calculation at the moment seems to be, I can stay defiant longer than you can stay angry. And, you know, trying to run out the news cycle. Um, But I do feel, and I say it was reinforced by the Commons earlier, that there's this feeling that he is painting himself into a corner here. And John McTernan, uh, former New Labour guy, tweeted earlier, saying that the next steps are potentially opening up more problems for the government because the next step is, you know, government refuses to commit to full publication of the Grey Report. Labour can use the next opposition day debate for a humble address demanding publication in Phil. So if the Tories rebel and Labour come through, that's a win for them. If the Tories vote against publication and rouse up public anger, that's also a win for Labour. So his reading of it was, you know, parking the report for now may buy them a very small amount of extra time. But at some point, this crunch is going to have to come over it. So release the Grey Report is the centrist, release the Ford Report. We've got one. We've got a battle cry at last. <laughs> I don't know. It's literally ready to Absolutely. go. It's, I mean, just, you know, if you can wrap anything up from this, I mean, Johnson's going to be speaking to the entire parliamentary conservative party at half past six in one hour, listeners, from when we're recording. So everything may have changed by the time you hear this. But you know, the strong impression I got is that he hasn't just painted himself into the corner. He's painted the entire party into a corner. And if he survives, he will just continue to contaminate them for as long as he's there. Everything he touches turns to shit. Everybody he deals with, he lies to and taints. The longer he stays there, the more it's going to taint the Conservative brand for a generation. I'm trying to be optimistic here, I hear you. <laughs> stroking your chin going, yeah. Mm. Well, it's just the thing, like, as someone who doesn't like the Conservative Party, I'm like, well, this is excellent. And as someone who just lives in this country yes. consistently, <laughs> I'm like, it's like, well, they are unfortunately the government. Yes. And it would be, like, you know, it's slightly suboptimal that they're consistently mired in, like, this guy who's just... Pul- uh, pumping sewage constantly uh, into the works of everything in this nation. Yes, the Death Star but, is about this to is, explode, but we live on the Death Star. This seems to be sort of two, a few things coming together here where you've got, you know, you're saying this spectacle in Parliament earlier of the party still going out to defend this one person in contravention of every single parliamentary norm, rule of decency, whatever. Because, you know, we go back to our old friend Brexit, where the great purge of the party two years ago means that we essentially have a Conservative Party largely made up of these complete non-entities who know that when he goes, they go. Mm. And I think this is what's giving it this queasy sort of last days in the bunker feeling at the moment, is that, (laughs) you know, the likes of Pretty Patel and, you know, putting Jacob Rees-Mogg and people like that, you know, they should not be on the front bench. They, they, they shouldn't be on the front bench of anything. And they know that once he goes, I think that's their cover gone as well. So essentially for the party at the moment, it's kind of a free shot in defending him because it's their careers as much as his that they're fighting for. But I would say on that, like with at least some of the background, like I mentioned Aaron Bell uh, earlier, uh, you have at least had some conservative backbenchers. And it was when you were watching that session of parliament, it was like, you know, Lindsay Hoyle called someone from the Labour Party who was like, resign, and then called someone from the Conservative Party. And it was sort of a 50 50 toyn cost of whether. They, a toyn cost. Toyn cost. <laughs> it, was, it, was it was an absolute toyn cost as to whether or not, uh, whether they would say, does the Prime Minister agree that he has the tastiest dick in the world, or whether 
whether they were going to say, like, can you please fuck off now? Um, and mm. so it, it was not like when you c- contrast that with something like uh, the American Republican legislators uh, during the Trump years who absolutely like with the exception of like one or two of them would never say anything. Uh, that was like at least worthwhile to show that, OK, the, at least some of these people are not totally without a spine. What a bunch of cusses. <laughs> on friday the winter olympics starts in beijing and it's shaping up to be the most controversial since sochi in russia all the way back in 2014 <laughs> diplomatic boycotts human rights concerns and the pandemic means that the build-up to the event has been anything but smooth athletes are being warned not to leave a covid secure closed loop of venues and hotels and not to choose anything negative about china's government with the Chinese government prosecuting what's been described as a genocide against the Muslim Uyghurs of Xinjiang province and erasing the last vestiges of democracy in Hong Kong, can we really watch the skiing, curling and luging in good conscience? And will it make any difference if we don't? Yasmin, um, Britain, America, Australia, Canada are among the nations who've staged a diplomatic boycott of the Games. What does that actually mean in practice? Um, will it have any effect, do you think? Uh, in practice, this means that none of these countries are going to have any high-ranking officials or delegates uh, representing them at the games. So in effect, um, the governments are basically allowed to snub China and kind of register their opposition to China's human rights abuses that you just laid out, um, but while still ensuring that their athletes are free to compete. Um, now, whether that will have any impact, I mean, critics of diplomatic boycotts, um, which includes for example, French President Emmanuel Macron, I think he called them um, symbolic and insignificant. You know, they'll tell you that these sort of things amount to nothing more than empty posturing. Um, and that, you know, it, and then, of course, the IOC, which obviously has a vested interest in seeing these games go ahead, um, you know, undisturbed, they'll argue that, you know, politics and sports should be kept separate. Um, but, you know, th- there is another um, argument which I think has clearly been heated by by the U.S., Britain, and other countries, um, that you know you can't ignore <laughs> human rights abuses um, that are happening on such an egregious scale, and perhaps you can still make a statement and and say something um, without penalizing your athletes, uh, many of whom, for which you know they'll only have one shot at competing in the Olympic Games. So I think at most what we're going to see with this boycott is that clearly that what, what it's intended to do and what I think it has done, at least in the days leading up to it, is bring a lot of attention to China's human rights abuses in Xinjiang and elsewhere to try to prevent it from just being this soft power exercise that Beijing clearly wants it to be. You know, like, yes, I I think the Chinese government I saw recently was sort of describing Xinjiang as this like winter fantasy land or fairyland. I need to find the the link, but, you know, to, to kind of try to smash that image. Um, and say, actually, no, there's some really atrocious things happening in, in China at the moment. Um, and we're going to register the, our displeasure with it by, by not showing up. Beijing staged the 2008 Summer Games, and it's actually going to be the first city to hold both Summer and Winter Games. Um, back then, it made quite a lot of uh, you know conciliatory noises, uh, lots of pledges, including enhanced human rights. There were protest zones, should people wish to protest, but funnily enough, the police didn't approve any of the protests, <laughs> so there weren't any protests actually happening. Times have very much changed now. What, what, what message do you think they're trying to send to the outside world now? 
Yeah, I mean, this is not the the China of two thousand eight is not the China of twenty twenty two. Um, you know, I think what they're trying to do with these games, which you know, I think was the same in two thousand eight, um, is is that they're trying to bolster their image and validate their authoritarian system on the international stage, pure and simple. And you know, holding the Olympics is an immense privilege, right? It's like you know, the whole、mm-hmm. the world is quite literally watching you, um, and you get to kind of show the best of your country and and you know of its talents, but also you know all the good things that you want to showcase. Um, but the problem with the Olympics is that we've increasingly seen over recent years that fewer and fewer people actually want to host them. Which is why, when it came to the competition to host these games, it was between Kazakhstan and China. So not actually very many good options.、Um, but you know, I think the Chinese government wants to use these games to effectively, you know, sort of demonstrate that the world can and should, in their view, look past the. Kind of quote unquote internal affairs of China, whether it's put up and shut up effectively,、um, and just you know carry on with the games as normal. And it's worth pointing out that you know there aren't that many countries imposing a diplomatic boycott. So in fact, many countries, including some European countries, are going to be present、um, at the opening ceremonies. You know, all the sponsors are still there.、Um, it's perhaps too soon to say whether the diplomatic boycott was. Success or not, it depends how you measure the success of it.、Um, but I think, in terms of getting sort of broad buy-in to this notion that、um, the world needs to stand up against China's human rights abuses,、um, I I don't know that they're actually going to kind of remember this as as a success. How are Muslim-majority countries approaching the games? Because yeah, the treatment of the of the Uyghurs is you know it's becoming like the emblematic human rights kind of atrocity of of the decade. Yeah, and they've Muslim majority countries.、Um, you know, I I want to preface by saying that the Muslim world is not a monolith.、Um, you know, it's、mm-hmm. it spans continents and and languages and cultures. You know, but at many times we've seen that Muslim majority countries are able to speak with one voice, often with you know with regard to Israel's treatment of the Palestinians,、uh, when it comes to caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad emanating from Europe, when it comes to、um, the the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar. You know, we've seen time and again Muslim majority. Countries and their leaders speak out、um, often with one voice on these issues, but with the Uyghurs, we've heard almost zilch. I mean, the, the response has been pretty erratic. You've had some countries like Turkey、um, kind of have pretty tepid criticism of China, but then you've had others like Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Egypt who have gone out of their way to actually、um, endorse、uh, China's policies in Xinjiang,、um, pretty much echoing the Chinese government's、um, framing of, of their policies as sort of anti-terrorism. Um, so yeah, I mean, in short, you've heard nothing. No, none of the Muslim majority countries、um, in the world have joined the diplomatic boycott, and in fact,、um, many of the countries that、uh, purport to be defenders of the world's Muslims—I'm thinking Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Turkey—you、um, know, the, a lot of them are going to be present at the opening ceremonies. Are you in any way interested in the games yourself? Is sort of like a you know a guilt watch or anything? Are you bothered at all? <laughs>、uh, I I will say I didn't really grow up. Like I was never an avid watcher of the Olympics,、um, so no, and I'm probably not going to bring myself to wake up super early to watch them either. I don't know what the time difference situation is like, but I've I've had some friends who who are a bit more interested than I、uh, talking about kind of you know rearranging their schedules for this.、Um, no, I've never been a huge Olympics watcher, and I think having done some. Reporting in the past about the Olympics and whether it's kind of fit for purpose. I mean, I, I'm forever in awe of the athletes and the incredible stuff they do.、Um, but when it comes to the IOC and the Olympics as an institution, I, I think I I have a lot of questions. So I'm not going to feel that、um, yeah that compelled to to tune in this year. But maybe we'll see. I can I could potentially be convinced for some of the 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 cooler 
cooler um, sports, potentially. The ones I didn't know anything about. Yeah, they're all cool. It's cold. That's <laughs> what the Olympics are all about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm from California. I don't do oh, cold. So, enough, yeah. that, I mean, a lot of these sports are just unknown to me. Yeah. Hey, how about you? Are, you? are you going to be doing a guilt watch out of the corner of your eye? Brown guys don't ski, Andrew. Come on. I no, refuse to believe no, this. Like, I, have, I have one friend, Dunmai, who went skiing recently. And before he went, I was just like, and how do you want me to distribute your goods among your family when you die? <laughs> uh, and everything like that. It's, it's cold sliding and it's, uh, not, it's, it's not for me. When I was in my first year of university, uh, a girl called Priyal, who was in second year, went on a ski trip. She was the first brown person I'd ever known to go skiing and she came back with a broken leg and I was like, I was right, it's not for us. Doesn't everybody come back with a broken leg? I thought that was the point of skiing. You sit there with a plaster on, <laughs> swigging cocktails in your horrible jumper. No, I don't want it. I have no interest. So uh, so this means that I, I wouldn't have been engaging with the uh, Winter Olympics anyway. I'm seeing an hilarious cool running style movie where <laughs> you learn to yeah. ski and become the Eddie the Eagle Edwards. <laughs> anyway, we, you know, we, we, we get off the point. I mean, I, is there a point where, you know, I mean, you do like your sport. Is there, is there a point where you have to sort of avert your eye? I could barely watch the World Cup in Russia in 2018, for instance, because it was so, so egregious that they got it. Yeah. I sort of like half watched England out of one corner of my eye. And I think that the issue is like it, it's becoming more and more that way. Like th there are some things where there's just no plausible deniability. Like you've got the 2022 Football World Cup, uh, Men's World Cup coming up in Qatar. And you're like, well, obviously, like... Oh, do you really think that it was merit that meant that this microstate in a desert was given this football tournament in a way that inconveniences the international, uh, the, the domestic schedules of all of the most powerful football clubs uh, in the world? It's, it's like, a puzzler. Like, yeah, yeah, uh, exactly. Like uh, what, what one feels as though there might have been the slightest uh, whiff of uh, dodgy dealings uh, with regard to that. Mm. Uh, Justin, there was a belief that welcoming China into the kind of into the world sporting community, as it were, would somehow make the government more cooperative, you know, more open to the outside world. Given what we know about the world sporting community, as uh, here has just outlined so beautifully, uh, do you think this is a little bit naive? Completely, yes. I mean, the most cursory reading of history shows the idea that sport is divisible from the political realm is absolutely for the birds. And I don't think anyone can ever specify when this mysterious golden age was when, you know, sport and politics somehow weren't bound together. I mean, was it, you know, 1936 when Lenny Riefenstahl was getting hired to, you know, make the official movie of the Berlin Olympics. But, you know, you know, there's a reason why Black September attacked the Olympic team in 72, why, you know, Moscow and LA were boycotted in 1884, even, you know, the way the Argentinian government used the World Cup in 78. And what I do think is different nowadays is that we live in a world where pop culture is broadly taken much more seriously in mm. quarters where it never was previously. So I think the salience of these things is actually far more. And I think governments have learned the power of using culture in a way that they weren't fully aware of it in the past so not just in sport we see that in say if you look at the way Qatar is using huge investment in contemporary art to sort of rebadge the country with the museum of uh, Islamic art you know they're investing insane I think the world's biggest investor in contemporary art at the moment um yeah the attempts to rebadge Saudi as a tourist destination the way that art fairs are moving out across China Mercedes-Benz fashion week is in Moscow nowadays and so I think rather than it becoming sort of less of a thing where you know sport and politics together i think it's actually far more important now than it ever was i would just like to say contrary to what justin's saying that i think that in some instances it is 
possible and desirable to separate uh, sport and politics. Uh, because, for example, when I'm at the cricket watching India and actively booing England, <laughs> I I need everyone to know that that has nothing to do with my political uh, persuasions and mm. that is very key to me uh, because neither of my parents were born in this country which means that I think that the Home Office can legally deport me now. You know they have <laughs> cameras in the cricket <laughs> and facial recognition here. Oh, no. And they're here right now. <laughs> uh, the cameras won't be able to tell the difference. They'll they'll deport some other poor guy. <laughs> Justin, there's a fantastic piece in The New Yorker by Evan Ovnos which points out that the lessons China took from 2008 were that you can indeed style it out on the kind of human rights front just by force majeure, but also that like immediately afterwards, the world financial crisis occurred and the Arab Spring. And it, the, the lesson they drew from it was that the West is kind of economically weak and also weak in terms of its values. So this, the, it, the aftermath of the 2008 Olympics almost encouraged them down the route of the more hardline China that they've got now. Um, and then, of course, Trump happens and it kind of convinces them, you know, even further. I, I, I know that we're only a podcast, right? And we don't exactly have the ear of uh, the policymakers, although I'm sure there are one or two of them out there. It's, you know, is, is there any way that the West can kind of uh, get on the front foot with this? I mean, when, you've, when you're faced with sports washing, you're faced with, you know, huge amounts of money, as you've just described, not just in China, but across the uh, the, the, the less liberal world. Is there any way that the, that the West can kind of use sports to push back on this? It's really difficult because, I mean, the... The thing that really stings about the criticism in that New Yorker article is that, like all the harshest criticisms, it actually has, you know, it stings because it has more than a grain of truth in it. One thing, and, you know, I don't want to be too down on this because I'm someone who, you know, unlike the rest of the panel, I'm an enormous fan of things like the Winter Olympics and, you know, the regular Olympics. Like, I will watch anything and everything, but, you know, I will get up at 3 a.m. to watch the pole vault. You know, I absolutely love these tournaments. And I do think, you know, they, give rise to these genuinely stirring moments where, you know, you do get these odd sort of hands across the trenches moments. So I think one thing that I would feel slightly optimistic about, and I think is an overlooked source of power in this dynamic, is actually the sports brands themselves. Now, it's obviously naive to expect too much from vast global multinationals. But I think over the last few years, one thing that's really come to the fore is if we look at, say, how powerful it was when Nike weighed in behind Colin Kaepernick, not only for the fact that, you know, they moved very quickly to kind of draw a line in the sand and say, look, he's our athlete. We're going to back him on this one. We're not going to back down in the face of boycotts that were being threatened. But then also how hugely they profited from that. I think their company value went up something like $5.5 billion over the, uh, the year ahead. Over the, You know, they profited enormously from that campaign. And I think a lot of other brands took notice of that and said, well, look, it is possible to do the right thing and also to line up, you know, your economic interests. So I think there is a lesson there that the consumer pressure can often be very strong about these issues, and it may be advantageous for brands to respond to that. You know, we've still seen things like, you know, Lewis Hamilton recently speaking out about homophobia in relation to Saudi and Bahrain when he went out there for the Grand Prix. Um, it'll be interesting to see if anything like that is repeated in China. That's obviously more difficult for individual athletes. But I think if they know that the people who really pay their wages, which is the sports companies rather than national teams or people like the IOC, there may be people who feel more emboldened to speak out there. I just say we're often very harsh on him in this podcast, so I think we finally got a moment of conciliation and it's Justin Quirk, Boris Johnson, handshake meme, 3am up, <laughs> watching someone on the pole. <laughs> That that's an uncannily accurate observation into my life over here in Surbiton. 
Finally, sometimes when I'm watching the BBC Parliament channel on Newsnight, I find myself asking when exactly we decided to outsource the coverage of our politics to Jim Henson. <laughs> uh, we seem to be in a sort of a nightmare golden age of the very strange MP. It's not just Conservatives like Michael Agent Hairpiece Fabricant, the cartoonish Desmond Swain, who's a kind of supercharged Alan Bastard, the wild-eyed monarchist Joy Morrissey, or escaped Beano character Mark Francois. It's also performative characters like Labour's blunt instrument Richard Bergen, the member for Kerrang West, and the genuinely odd Lloyd Russell Moyle. This isn't body shaming, I'm not exactly an oil painting myself, but we do seem to be plagued by unusually peculiar MPs. Why is this? Why now? Um, here, uh, when I was doing my politics degree in Leeds a million years ago, I remember saying to a fellow student, nobody who wants to be an MP should be allowed to do it. They're all deeply weird. And she turned around and said, my dad is Frank Dobson MP. <laughs> and uh, we became great friends. And Frank Dobson was brilliant. So we, loved, we loved him a lot. But it's a very pervasive belief, isn't it? People who want to be MPs are strange. Yeah, and I think that uh, it's probably gotten more so. Whether it's because in the age of 24 News, we're just much more exposed to them, mm. or whether it's the fact that uh, because you can get such a high public profile that this really has been, uh, as the, you know, the old quote claims show business for ugly people, mm. um, perhaps perhaps MPs have got weirder as time has gone on. Uh, gone on. Although I know that a uh, friend of the pod, uh, Marie LeCant, has written a whole book yes. about the, the weird weirdest MPs that this country's had and they it's did hardly like shoot each other yeah, yeah. yeah it's hardly a 21st century phenomenon mm. but it, and I took get the impression that it's a show business for ugly people is one thing but this is show business for very kind of psychologically odd people like why does Desmond Swain wear that bizarre double-breasted thing why does he have that, that haircut that makes him look like he's in the flying pickets I don't where's it coming from it's like there's a strange performative, attention-attracting thing that seems to have little to do with politics. But I think, but being MP is just, it's a profoundly weird job and has, particularly in the age of social media, I think, become so much more of a weird job. And, like, the thing is, I think, you know, it's, it's all fine and well for us to sit in this uh, studio criticising... Uh, MPs, many of them uh, are in it for the right reasons and wanting to yeah. do the right thing, and, and that's worth acknowledging. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like, who would want that that sort of blowback on themselves? You know, you're constantly getting uh, harangued and harassed uh, in in every sort of sphere and everything. And then I think that the people who would want to do that are a people who have a sincere sort of moral mission or what have you. Maybe they're extraordinarily passionate about a particular issue or really want to do things, which many people are. And I'm very grateful that we have those sorts of people. Or you want to do it because you're into that sort of thing, mm. which is odd. Yeah. I mean, I, I often will run down the kind of, uh, you know, the legal ladders of MPs, just sort of run through. Who's, who'd be a good guest? Who's interested for this, for this reason or that reason? And it's remarkable how many you've never heard of. And mm. then you think... Actually, yeah, that's a good thing. Yeah. Because the fewer fabricants peacocking around in a stupid wig and, the you know, the better. You actually want the boring MP who's grinding it out. Whatever party that they're in, the kind of person is just like locally respected and a little bit boring, but mm. dogged and determined. Yeah. And I think that also at the moment, we're probably getting an over-representation of the weirder mm. members of parliament, because right now you have them called upon constantly to go do the broadcast rounds in the defense of the indefensible. Mm. And of course, it's not going to be the person who just wants a quiet life trying to make it so that the gambling industry is less egregious or whatever it is mm. that they uh, might have as their personal uh, passion project. It's going to be the 
MP for Comfort Upon Tweed uh, that is off their entire rocker. It's going to be the freak of the week. Just, Justin, do you think um, there's a performative element to the uh, the strangeness in Parliament right now? I think there is. I mean, I think it's a few things. In the most calculating, <clears throat> I think it's something that you can probably trace back to Silvio Berlusconi. Um, who I think was the first one I can remember in my lifetime who really cracked that idea that if you present yourself as a bit of a clown, you can get further with genuinely nefarious beliefs and attitudes. Um, I think Johnson clearly seems to have, you know, learned much from that. But I mean, often it kind of reminds me of... You know, the way like footballers come up with sort of like stupid trademark celebrations because it keeps the camera on them for five seconds longer. Oh, yeah. keep like rocking a baby happening. or, yeah. And when I look at Fabricant, I always just think this is the equivalent of footballers doing some stupid formation dance immediately after <laughs> scoring. <laughs> Andrew, of all, the, of all the goal celebrations you could be cynical about, why did you go for the one where it's just like, oh, this man is celebrating the fact that he's just had a child? <laughs> no, <laughs> like, it's often that's quite people, a nice one, isn't it? It <laughs> is, but, yeah, often, it's, but it's, <laughs> often it's people who haven't had a baby standing there rocking a baby. Oh, right. Okay. You know, yeah. That, that's yeah. weird. I've had a baby and it's called a football. <laughs> yeah. Justin, um, you know, the, the conservatives in the 1980s were kind of indistinguishable from their spitting image look. They were kind of a carbuncular and strange bunch. But the, the kind of, you know, where, where are the Labour oddballs of that song? Like the Dennis Skinner's, that kind of thing. The current party, I think, is pretty solid. I mean, it certainly doesn't have that almost kind of supernatural level of weirdness that the Tory front bench seems to happen at the moment. Although I think if you tracked back a year or two, I think the entire grouping around Corbyn would have been pretty rich pickings for uh, the mm. satirists of the 80s. I mean, not just the MPs themselves, but, you know, people like Seamus Milne, obviously Chris Williams, these will be all that crew gave off the air of, I don't know, it's, it's that lethal combination of sort of dim-witted fanaticism that always gives people that slightly eye-popping quality whenever they start talking. Yasmin, as someone who chose to live here, and we still don't quite know why, <laughs> do you, do our MPs strike you as especially odd compared to your own rich tapestry? As someone who never very closely followed American politics, so only really ever knew kind of my own representatives and like the occasional like very high-profile ones, I don't know. I mean, I will say... I think having spent the last almost five years here now, I mean, one thing I've always appreciated about British politics is, and I think I've said this before on the podcast, how accessible it feels. And I think that may kind of contribute to the fact that there feels like there's a lot of weirdos because I feel like you just see more of them and, you know, they may hold like really big positions, but they are like quite literally accountable to like their constituents. Um, But no, I mean, I think there's just a lot of characters. I mean, I think what I would say is like a comparison to the US example is that, you know, there are the types of politicians like the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world who are clearly trying to be the most outrageous in the room for like the explicit purpose of, you know, getting influence, getting power, getting lots of attention. Like in in the case of the modern day Republican Party, trying to be the Trumpiest candidate um, so as to be seen as a successor or, you know, someone close to the former president. I don't really think you, you see that here as much in that I don't necessarily know if people are being weird for the sake of it. But I think a lot of like I mean, you guys tell me if this is wrong, but my always impression was because like of the theatricality of British politics, I could just couldn't really imagine a very like shy person really seeking out this job. Like even just watching the House of Commons order, earlier today. Order, order, oh, order. Yeah. What do you mean we're theatrical? <laughs> you're, you're, order. <laughs> you're exactly that. Like you're going to get these like, you know, even the like the seemingly quote unquote normal or the like, you know, the, of of, yeah. of the bunch. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess all of that is to say is... um. I've always found British politicians to be quite almost 
kind of quirky and charming in a way, not necessarily because of their politics, but because I think, you know, their personalities, their characters, and but they're accessible personalities and characters. And um, I do think there is something a little bit nice about that. I think because in the US, a lot of the bigger characters who are known tend to be known sometimes for the wrong reasons. Um, it is kind of, you know, quaint to see people just known for being absolutely ridiculous when they're talking in the House of Commons. Well, you know, if when you model your democracy on a kind of Ruritanian Harry Potter bedlam asylum, then you're going to get an interesting, odd people like you. Quaint. <laughs> such a cruel word. Um, Justin, just finally, do you think that this backdrop could actually be Sir Keith Hindsight's secret weapon? You know, we've had quite enough of characters. We've had, It's been lively enough for the past 12 years. Here comes Keir. He's actually quite dull. Thank God. Yeah, I've long thought that make Britain boring again could be the absolute winning formula for the next election, yes. whoever runs with it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, thinking back to Gordon Brown, when you just let him be himself, which was a fairly boring stats-obsessed intellect, he was great. It was only got into, like, feign interest in, you know, Strictly Come Dancing or the Bake Off or whatever. <laughs> yeah. whole thing, the, the wheels Arctic just monkeys. came off it completely. So, yeah, make Britain boring again, I say. What's what's fascinating about that is that Make Britain Boring Again was what won the 2019 general election, right? Get Brexit Done was Mm. in many ways Make Britain Boring Again. It just happened to be a lie. Yeah, it was like, (laughs) we thought we were voting for Make Britain Boring Again. Instead, what we got was Scream If You Want to Go Faster. And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's escape routes, the films, the TV shows, the books, the music, the work meetings that have transported our panellists away from the bruising world of politics are here. What's yours? Uh, so my parents came over for dinner last week and I uh, put some music on the record player because I am exactly the sort of early 30s millennial middle class wanker that I come across with every statement. Uh, and my dad was annoyed that I had an insufficient amount of Asian music uh, and everything. And so he's bought me some Nusrat Fadeli Khan uh, records. And I am a huge fan of Nusrat Fadeli Khan and Gowali music and everything. And I would heartily recommend uh, people get into and listen to that uh, sort of thing. So I'm looking forward to uh, spending some evenings uh, listening to him singing. You're the one for me, Fatty. Very nice. He's great, though, isn't he? He, was like, he did a tune with Massive Attack once, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, great times. Um, Yasmin, how about you? Uh, at the risk of sounding completely unoriginal, um, I started playing Wordle a few weeks ago. Um, and it might be my favorite time of day. It's something I reserve for the evening because I like don't want to think about it too much. But um, yeah, no, we just like my boyfriend and I, we like just like, you know, put like our work away. We'll sit down and pen and paper in hand because we take this very seriously. Um, and we'll, yeah, just try to solve the puzzle. And it's fun. It's a I just like that. It's the sort of online thing that like you can't binge like you, it can be enjoyed for a day for a little bit or a long time, depending on how long it takes you. And then it's done. And you used to do it again. I just, yeah. So I'm I'm a big Wordle fan. I am weaning myself off tweeting my scores, though, because I do recognize that they're annoying. Um, so it, it may not look like I'm playing it every day, but rest assured, I am. <laughs> I've got into a bit of a bad place with it. I've started staying up till a minute past midnight for the new one. Oh, <laughs> hell yeah. That's very bad for Yasmin, you. when you said that you and your boyfriend stop work and do it together, I was like, you're working at one minute past midnight? <laughs> <laughs> We, we do wait for like the evening as far as we did try like one time I was like do you just want to take a break and play Wordle I was like no I can't we can't because it will so just annoyed. take forever sometimes we will just take our time with it and like we also just argue over what the first word should be 
irate is is sometimes my favorite but i know there's i'm gonna give that one a go yeah it's very hard to, not to get the e in the same place every single time mm. justin how, how about you um i'm staying incredibly on brand and uh, i've started reading new book by friend of the culture bunker michael han denim and leather ah. the rise and fall of the new wave of british heavy metal which is a door-stopping oral history of the entire world of the late 70s, early 80s, The Birth, Iron Maiden, Saxon, Venom, all those sort of bands. It is absolutely fantastic. I'm a short way in at the moment, but it is delivering in spades. Michael's going to be a guest on The Culture Bunker in a few weeks discussing this, and in many ways a companion term to your own history of uh, American heavy metal. Modesty would preclude me from saying, Andrew, but yes, it is. It's available on Amazon, nothing but a good time, the spectacular rise and fall of glam metal. I think Justin's is better. No. I've not read either. I don't, I've got no <laughs> don't say that. Michael's quite a big bloke, so I don't want to get on the wrong <laughs> side of him when yeah, it comes exactly to uh, clashing yeah. over metal books. But uh, no, uh, Denim and Leather by Michael Hannett is absolutely fantastic. Well, my escape route is Archive 81, the new Netflix series uh, about um, a chap who restores videotapes who's given a task to restore some videotapes in a building that burnt down, killing all the people inside it. And the things that he discovers and the things that emerge will, even by the end of the first episode, terrify you to death. Uh, recommended by our own Alex Andreo, and a fantastic recommendation it is. Archive 81 on Netflix. It's worth your subscription. And that is the end of this week's Bunker. Thank you to Justin Quirk. Thanks for having me, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you to Yasmin Sahan. Thank you. And thanks to Ahir Shah. Thank you. We're going to be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Don't forget there's a new episode of The Culture Bunker every Saturday too. And if you like this podcast, do send it to three friends to spread the word. And if you really like it, then you could support us on Patreon for early episodes, merchandise and all manner of extras. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. And of course, backers get a shout out at the end of the podcast. Here are some now. Hello, and many thanks from me to Jonathan Besant, Carly, and Richard McGough. Best wishes from me to Paul Chesterman, Meet, and Ian Armstrong. Many thanks from me to Lottie Croft, Katie Marshall, and Lisa O'Sullivan. And finally, best wishes from me to Simon Ryder, Nicholas Searle, and amazingly, Carl Coughlin. Yes, Carl Coughlin of Micro Disney and Fatima Mansions, a hero of mine. We're glad to have your support. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next time. The Bunker was presented by Andrew Harrison, with audio production from me, Robin Lieber. The Bunker is produced by Yelena Sofronovic and Jacob Archbold. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, and lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production.